0: The New Testament reading will be from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 34. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven also our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, They have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. that you need them all. But seek first of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's go to God in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. Amen. The future is what lies between today and the time you die. So, how do you think about your future? Sometimes it's helpful to think about how other people think about the future. And so I'm going to introduce you to one of my favorite kids' books, Franklin Endicott and the Third Key by Kate DiCamillo. And we're going to see how the main character thinks about his future. Franklin Endicott was a worrier. He worried a lot. He worried about leprosy. Who wouldn't worry about leprosy? And lions? They were such alarmingly violent creatures. He worried about tests not being properly prepared for them. Black holes, what happened if you got sucked into them? And armadillos, transmitters of leprosy. (laughs) Frank worried about alligators. They look sluggish and slow moving, but in fact, they were not slow moving at all. Alligators could move very, very quickly when they were motivated to do something. Eat you, for instance. Frank worried about submarines getting trapped in one brown recluse spiders being bitten by one, vampire bats, carriers of rabies, and rabies, which could kill you. Also, Frank worried about goats. There was no good reason to worry about goats, but Frank worried about them nonetheless. Their eyes were so unnerving and otherworldly. Frank had so many things that he worried about that he kept a notebook exclusively for his worries. He listed the worries alphabetically. He indexed them and cross-referenced them. He felt that his worries were legitimate, fact-based, and solidly researched. Except perhaps for the goat worry. But Frank was embarrassed by how many worries he had. Were his worries out of control? Were his worries excessive? It worried him to think so. <laughs> so as you can see, like the writing is good, it's witty. But what I really like about this book is the characters, because you can recognize the characters, and in the characters, you can recognize yourself. Because the fact is, we're all worriers. We all worry a lot. We worry about our children. Who wouldn't worry about our children? And smartphones, they're such alarmingly distracting devices. We worry about pandemics, not being properly prepared for them. Artificial intelligence, What happens if we get displaced by it? And tech bros, creators of artificial intelligence. We worry about climate change. It looks sluggish and slow-moving, but in fact, it is not slow-moving at all. Climate change could move very, very rapidly if it reaches a tipping point. We worry about economic recession, getting trapped in one, retirement accounts, losing them, politicians, carriers of social breakdown, and social breakdown, which could kill you. We have so many things that we worry about that we check social media accounts exclusively for our worries. We sort the worries alphabetically. We email them and hyperlink to them. We feel our worries are legitimate, fact-based and solidly researched, but we are embarrassed by how many worries we have. Are our worries out of control? Is our worrying excessive? It often worries us to think so. When we consider the future, many of us find ourselves responding in anxiety. When we consider the time between today and the time that we die, there seems to be so many things that we can be concerned about. And the list kind of keeps growing every year. The problem is that often the kinds of solutions that we look to can actually make us worry more. Let's just look at two of these dilemmas in detail, and see how this kind of feeds back on itself. So one of the things as an American citizen that uh, we are often taught is that to be a good citizen is to be an informed citizen. So how do we become an informed decision and participate in the life of the body politic? Well, it's often said that what we need to be doing is keeping up with the headlines. And so we go to the news to try to figure out things, and and we keep going back. The problem is that we can never keep up with everything. And on top of that, even our own news is monetized on our own worry that comes from it. For the last 25 and more years, the shifting base of funding for our newspapers and our media outlets has been such that in order to actually get readers and funding, you have to have headlines that encourage strong emotional reactions. And so instead of anxiety being a byproduct of our going to news sources to understand what's going on, it actually becomes a valuable commodity because that's how the whole thing now has to stay in business. Now, that comes back into our own lives, because in our personal relationships, often what we're trying to do is we're being asked, well, what do you think about this particular situation? We're faced with a deluge of information, and it all makes us anxious. And so then, if we don't feel like we have the right answer in a given situation, it can put our relationships on the line. Likewise, our work is often a source of worry and anxiety for us. We often look to work for both recognition of our worth and for money, things that we can provide for ourselves. The problem is our work is an unstable source of either of these things. We want to try to secure our future through our working and secure our recognition through our work. But with the way jobs turn over these days, with perhaps even the change in artificial intelligence, we wonder if we'll even have jobs tomorrow or 10 years in the future. These things feed back. Maybe your worries don't have to do with work or the media, but maybe it's how you go about parenting. And then you're faced with a plethora of different options about how to go about doing this that often conflict. And you wonder, what do I do? Perhaps it's a medical diagnosis. Perhaps it's political situations. The reality is that anxiety is a real uh, pressing issue for many of us, simply by virtue of living in a society which generates this kind of anxiety. So, how do you think about the time between today and the future? Now, when we look at the passage that we heard in our reading this morning, taken from the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 6. At first glance it can seem simplistic. If we read that passage too quickly what we might be tempted to think is that all we have to do is don't worry and pray more. But I want us to see today that there's something deeper that Jesus is doing that can actually speak to our lives and we're going to see this in three ways. We're going to see a father who knows we're going to find daily provision, and we're going to hear of a hope for the future. Now, when Jesus was preaching this passage to his audience, his audience were Jewish people. And when they would hear the term that God is their father, that we would heard repeated throughout this passage, I think their minds would have gone back to the exodus The Exodus was the event whereby God took the nation of Israel and led them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And in Exodus chapter 4, God speaks to Moses, the man he's going to use to draw the people out, and he tells them that Israel is my firstborn son. And throughout this time, Jesus refers back to the nation of Israel as his firstborn son. Part of what his leading them out of Egypt will mean is learning what is it like to be a son. But Jesus does something different in this passage. In the Sermon on the Mount, from chapters five of Matthew to chapter seven of Matthew, we hear 15 times that God is your father. It's not simply that God was the father of the nation, But now he is the father of the individual people that Jesus was preaching to. In verses um, 7 through 15, we see that the father is the one who hears our requests. In verses 16 through 19, we see that the father sees what we do. And it changes us. And in verse 19 through 34, we see that the father knows our needs. This is a different orientation for the people. While they've learned this historical lesson about how God was their father of their nation, now they must live into the reality that God is their father individually. And so how does that change how they make requests to God? Well, unlike the world around them that would repeat mantras or prayers over and over trying to get heard by their gods. Jesus says, "You are heard not for your many words, but because you have a father who cares for you." And so then Jesus gives a very simple form of prayer, the Lord's prayer that we read this morning and repeated out loud. Because you can pray that way, knowing that God will hear you. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus says it's changing how you approach God. This is the time of Lent. Many of us may fast or give up things that we enjoy for the sake of turning our devotion to God. And the people of Israel would do something similar. But what happens when we know that we have a Father who sees? It means that we don't have to do these things thinking that we are going to earn God's approval or thinking that we have to be approved by others. It's God who sees and recognizes you as an individual. You can approach God knowing that he sees you. And as an extension of that, that changes then how we work. Because now I don't have to go and approach my work as something that I'm looking for recognition from others since I already have God's recognition of me now. And the Father knows your needs. In verses 19 through 34, he knows what we need before we ask it. So, knowing that we have a Father who knows us, we can rest in the Father. The second thing this passage shows us is that this Father will provide for us each day. Now, as Jewish people, hearing this about daily bread, and about today's troubles, I think they would remember what God had done for them back in Exodus 16 that we heard this morning. That's the story of how God miraculously provided food for his people when they were in the wilderness. Between the time that they were in slavery in Egypt and their entering of the promised land was a period of wandering in a wilderness area. The wilderness wasn't slavery, but it also wasn't the benefits of agricultural abundance that they would experience once they got into the land of Canaan. The wilderness then was discipline. It was formation of a loving father forming his son into what he wanted them to become as they entered that land. Now, like children on a long car ride, the nation of Israel was prone to complaining. Uh, if anyone's driven cross-country, which often happens in a city like this, because many of us are displaced and moved, you know, halfway across the country from where we've come from, or from around the world. If you take long trips with small children, what you hear often is, "Are we there yet?" You know, how much longer? And this is the response of the people of Israel to their journey in the wilderness. But God provides for them each time, and He provided something that was life-giving nourishing and that tasted good and they called it manna because that was their word to express their wonder and uncertainty about what this stuff really was it becomes their daily bread the miraculous provision of god is what sustains them through the time between slavery and entering the land of promise the purpose of this was to teach them about god This bread was given to them so that they would know that he was the Lord their God. God gave them this bread so that they would know that he was their father. Now, if you were living in first century Israel, this would strike you. Not only because of the uh, role of manna in the wilderness, but also the role that bread would play in your daily life. This really struck me when I was teaching up at the uh, University of Northern Iowa. I was a graduate assistant. And I had a student who was from Bosnia. And he lived, uh, he grew up in Waterloo after uh, fleeing Bosnia during the 90s. And we started to have these conversations about what it was like and just to hear horrifying stories. But he also told me like daily life tidbits. And he told me one time about the importance of bread in Bosnian culture. And he said, you might say, curse your mother. But he he said, you would never, as a Bosnian, say, curse bread. Bread was life. It was the source, it was it was the embodiment of what it meant for nourishment and sustenance. And because of that, it had an almost sacred role of his description in the life of an individual Bosnian. And I think that also probably was playing out in the New Testament time that we have recorded here. According to one author I read, and we can't be certain about this, but the economic situation in Palestine was such that approximately uh, half of the population was living at a subsistence level. This would mean that about 50% of the people were working a day and getting food for that day there wasn't a long-term buffer that they had. So if you work for a day in order to buy food for that day, that means if you don't work for that day, you don't eat that day. This means that if there's any sort of political change, if a large project completes, if there's a squabble between a land developer and they don't need your labor that day, you could get stuck. You remember that parable that Jesus talked about, about the laborers who were given their wages throughout the day? Some of those people were, were, were sitting around in the market till the very last part of the day. And when the manager comes and asks him, why are you standing around? They say, because no one has actually come and got us to take us to work. So that's the background in which these people are hearing Jesus' message. They realize that the provision is daily. And this is the promise even for us today, that God will provide what we need day by day. But there's also an additional aspect to this promise. It's not just a promise of physical daily sustenance, but we learn in the Bible that this is a promise of spiritual life each day. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This goes back to when Moses was reminding the people, just before they entered the promised land, of what God had done done for them. And Moses said in chapter 8, verses 3 through 7, he said, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that you that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And then down in verses 17 through 18, what's the response of re- understanding this? Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that, you, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. What we see here when Jesus is saying that we come to God for our daily bread is twofold. We acknowledge that God is the source of all the physical blessing that we have. But we also realize that that entails a spiritual blessing. And yet both the physical and the spiritual blessing are promised for today. It's not like we're promised a full pantry of blessing in the future. It's not like we just can relax because everything's taken care of. It's not like there won't be hardships and challenges as we walk through the wilderness. But we are promised to have exactly what we need for this day. What this means is it changes how we pray. It changes what we should be expecting from God. We expect from God for him to meet our need today. It changes how we work Because what it helps us to be attuned to is how God is the one who actually is doing the providing for us. In this sense, we don't earn what we work for. It's a stewardship that's been given to us. This changes how we think about today. So because we have a father who knows and a father who gives us daily provision, you can rest in God's promised provision for your daily bread. But that brings us to the last point we have to consider. And that's that we have a promised hope. Remember back in Exodus? The end goal of the Exodus wasn't so that the people would just wander in the wilderness forever. The end goal was that they would enter a land of blessing that they would find one day rest from their wandering. While we don't read it here in this passage, if we move forward toward the end of Matthew, in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, we read what Jesus said to his disciples in the night before he died. He gathered them together to celebrate the Passover feast. This was a commemoration of what God had done for them as they left Egypt and were headed toward the promised land. And we read in verse twenty six Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in your father's kingdom. What we find here is not just a promise of physical bread, nor even the promise that God's word would be with us and change us, but we find that Jesus becomes our bread. Jesus says that his body will break, he will die, so that we might live. Because it's only through the sacrifice of Christ dying, that we can be reconciled to God. It's only through the death of Christ that we can be adopted as God's sons. But Christ didn't die to stay dead. He died and rose again. And it's in his rising that we find our future hope. Because God has not intended that this life should be all that we live. God has intended that for those who would rest in his promises, that they would enter a promised rest far in the future. That those of us who put faith in Christ would enter into new bodies through the same resurrection that we see with Jesus. So this gives us a new hope. It gives us a hope that spans from today well into eternity. And we can then rest in the hope offered by Jesus. So, do you see how then this passage isn't a simplistic response to the anxieties we face today? It's not simply, don't worry and pray. If I told you to pray, that actually wouldn't help you. It only helps you if you bring your requests to a God who knows. Prayer is only something that we can, that transforms our anxiety when we know that God sees us and God hears us. Prayer only transforms our anxiety when we know that because of Christ's death and resurrection, God's love is secured for us. When we can rest in that, when we can rest in the knowledge that we have a Father, prayer becomes a little Sabbath that we can take with us throughout the week. It becomes a time of rest that we can turn to even in the midst of our work and labor. Because any time we take resting in prayer is time we aren't using working and earning for ourselves. Prayer is this acknowledgement that even in our work, it is only God who will provide for our daily rest. The future is what lies between today and eternity. And what this passage tells us is that God gives promises for today and God gives a promise of eternity. But the future is still uncertain from our perspective. It is covered by the promise of God that each tomorrow God will be with us. But many things we still don't know about. We don't know whether or not we will have a retirement account when the time comes. We don't know what political life will look like in this United States in 10 years. We don't even have a guarantee of perfect or whole health. But what we do have is a daily promise that God will meet our needs. We should also note that part of how this promise comes to us is in community. I think part of the reason I still like this book, Franklin Endicott and the Third Key, is because you see some of these patterns right in the book. One thing that's conspicuous if you read the book is the absence of Frank's parents. They're almost never mentioned, and they're certainly never functional in his life. And it's only when Frank runs into a strange old man who runs a consignment shop that he runs into an active father figure. And that man then offers him the gift of stories. And it's those stories that begin to address Frank's anxiety and show him a different way to look at the world. Probably a lot of us have found father figures in other people than maybe our biological father. Perhaps many of us have found comfort in stories. But what we need to realize is that those things aren't forever. It's only when we find our place in God's story that we can then find true rest. So, when you face the future, when you think, what are you going to do when you graduate, or will you ever graduate, when you consider a medical diagnosis or the possibility of one, When you're tempted to look at headlines and become nervous and distressed, rest in the promise of God. You have a loving Heavenly Father who has promised to provide for you daily. And if you place your hope and rest in that promise, you have a hope for the future. Let's pray. Father, we admit. That we are often anxious. Father, we admit that we worry. Father, help us to remember that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. It is you who feed the sparrows and who clothe the grass with flowers. Father, it is you who were mighty to save your nation out of the land of Egypt and provide for them in the wilderness. And Father, you are the one who brings all these promises together and fulfillment in Jesus. Give us faith today to rest in that promise. Give us assurance that whenever our anxiety crops up, you are always eager to hear our requests. Father, give us that rest as we go forth into this week and as we step day by day toward eternity with you. For Christ's sake. Amen.